0: back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. As always, I am very, very, very excited to be here. One, we are back from our week off. So we took last week off. Laurel and I needed a long weekend where we didn't podcast and we didn't do our day jobs because we just really needed to unplug. Re, rewind is not the word. Relax is the word I'm looking for. Relax and just kind of enjoy our company. But I'll tell you, I missed podcasting last week. I don't know. Did you
1: miss podcasting? Absolutely. I feel refreshed now. I feel like my brain was going a little puddingy, and now I feel super jazzed to be back in the studio.
0: Yeah, same here. I couldn't be more excited to be here. I'm also very excited because I think this week's subject is going to be very interesting. I think it'll bear a lot of fruit. I think we will be able to mine a lot of interesting themes. There are a lot of ways that we can go with this week's subject. Um, we also had some different methodology in how we researched it this week. So we're trying some new things out. I can't wait to talk about this particular movie. We're going to do a science fiction classic we're gonna go with one of my it's in my top 10 of favorite movies of all time like this is a derek classic a movie i have loved since the first time that i have seen it a movie that i constantly keep going back to and reinvestigating a movie that entering in this phase of my life now has new significance that it didn't used to have. And we're going to talk about Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey.
1: We are. It is really exciting to buckle down and really pick apart the richness of this film. I should say, this isn't the first time we've discussed this movie on The Midnight Myth. Very, very early in the podcast, we did an episode featuring... AI and robotics and consciousness. And we had to talk about HAL 9000 on that episode. So you can definitely go back and check that out. But this is going to be a much deeper dive into the mechanics, into the themes, into all of the universal symbols of 2001, rather than a more like focused HAL episode. So I'm excited to get into some of the things around HAL and everything that makes this movie what it is.
0: Yeah, while artificial intelligence is certainly on the table. For tonight's discussion, it's not just going to focus on that. I think that episode that might have been like our fifth or sixth one. It was
1: really, really early. It, we were kind of still getting our sea legs.
0: Yeah, it's not a very good episode. No, uh, none of our early ones are. But we were really figuring out how to do this. But because we did that AI heavy themed, what means what? It, what does it mean to have consciousness themed episode? That's not going to be the main angle we take in 2001. And usually I say this, and it's very true. We're not going to get to everything we could talk about.
1: Oh my God. Especially with this.
0: Not only is 2001 an amazing movie, it's an amazing book. There's a sequel movie. There are subsequent other books. There's a lot that we could discuss just in the movie alone. I have read the book 2001 A Space Odyssey. Laurel has not. Correct. At points, we may mention the book because it is... Very relevant to the movie, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, But yeah, I am bursting out of the seams with excitement. I could talk about my excitement for talking about this all podcast, so I'm going to stop before we get too deep into it. Laurel, do your thing.
1: Well, the conversation never begins or ends here on the podcast. We would love to hear from you in whatever way you feel comfortable with. The best way to reach us is on social media, especially on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, or you can head over to our website, midnightmyth.com, for blogs and additional content, uh, or to sign up for our email list. Once you're on that website, you'll also find links to our merch store if you really just need some of that sweet, sweet Midnight Myth merch, uh, and also our Patreon Uh, which is where you can support us for a small monthly donation in exchange for special perks like bonus episodes, which we'll have one coming out very soon for our Patreon subscribers that will wrap up our big nostalgia series that we concluded two weeks ago with The Wizard of Oz. Thank you to everyone who has written in, uh, who has sent us emails, who has uh, tweeted at us, everyone who has shared their thoughts on that series, on our Lord of the Rings series, everything. It's just so wonderful to hear from you and we're so grateful uh, to have had this engagement and to feel like people are listening and people are getting something out of what we're doing. It's really, really cool. Um, The absolute best thing that you can do for the podcast actually costs you no money at all, just about five minutes of your time. So I would love to encourage you to head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really, really helps us climb those charts, helps more people find the podcast, helps people figure out if we are what they're looking for, but it also just really feels so, so good to get that feedback from our listeners. So please consider doing that.
0: Wonderful. You can find me on Twitter at Derek Jones198, um, because the Midnight Myth Twitter is 99.9% of the time Laurel and yeah. not me. Yeah. And uh, fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Wheel of Ka is going to return. We will be discussing the Stephen King book, Salem's Lot. We're probably maybe two to three weeks away from having that episode recorded, which maybe needs it. We're probably about four to six weeks away from publishing the book. So if you want to read along and read Salem's Lot, now is the time and we will be discussing it. So very excited for that. Um, no more stuff, no more plugs.
1: Just stay tuned to the end of this episode for a very, very special announcement from Derek and Laurel.
0: Oh, that's right, we yeah. do. We have a special a announcement. surprise announcement at, for at you. At the end of the episode. So make sure you listen to the whole thing. All right, on with the show. Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to try to recap this movie. Uh, The movie came out in, was it 69? 68. 68. So it's been out for a long time. This is a movie that starts with the dawn of the human species. There is a group of pre-homo sapiens who are struggling to survive, They don't have food, and they lose control over their local waterhole with a rival group of pre-homo sapiens. Enter in a mysterious monolith that seems to manifest out of air, and the ape people wake up, touch the monolith, and one of them gets the idea to use a bone as not only a hunting implement, but a weapon as well. So they now have learned to hunt meat so they can eat, and they have taken back the water hole using bones as weapons from the rival group of Homo sapiens. Enter probably the single most famous shot of the entire uh, movie when the ape man throws up the bone and it cuts to a spaceship. We are now seeing humans in the year, I believe it's 19, it's not 2001 yet.
1: It's in the 90s, it's like 92.
0: It's in the 90s, the Cold War is over, uh, Americans and Russians are working together and are friends. The moon is all but colonized, and a uh, astronaut scientist is traveling to the moon under the cover that there might be a pandemic affecting people. All too real, there now that we're living in COVID. Turns out that is just a cover story. That a similar monolith that we saw in the Dawn of Men has been uncovered and dug up that was buried deliberately four million years ago on the surface of the moon when this group of american scientists interact with this object and touch it a signal starts beaming to jupiter in the book it's to Saturn. we will get to that later and they send a group of astronauts through space in the year 2001 armed with the hal 9000 computer to find out the origin of this signal. However, this mission is a secret mission. The astronauts are not aware that's why they're going. The only thing on board that knows this is the HAL 9000 computer, who malfunctions. Upon the malfunction and the two astronauts, Dave and Frank, realizing HAL is malfunctioning, they plan to disconnect HAL. HAL goes on a homicidal rampage, kills Frank— kills hibernating scientists slash astronauts that um, are in the spaceship and attempts to kill Dave unsuccessfully. Dave ends up disconnecting Hal. He learns the true reason for the mission is to investigate the source of this transmission in which he finds a monolith floating in the orbit of Jupiter. Presumably, Dave enters the monolith. I'm not even going to try to describe what happens. You just have to see it. And in the end, ends up in this room in which we see him age in different phases until he is on his deathbed in this room and then gets reborn as the star child. The star child is a gigantic space baby. The last shot of the movie is the space baby floating in orbit around Earth to the triumphant Strauss classical piece of music, Thus Spoke Zarathustras.
1: I am kind of blown away by that recap. I think that might be your best recap yet, because like, holy crap, this movie is really difficult to recap, but you got all the really important stuff uh, and it was brief. I am very, very, very impressed.
0: I'm not going to lie. I was very intimidated by this recap because this movie is it's a movie that is nearly devoid of character. Yeah, it is devoid of traditional scenes from a screenwriting perspective. It's
1: mostly nonverbal too.
0: It's mostly visual. It doesn't have a single character overcoming a obstacle within themselves or externally or usually an internal obstacle that manifests externally the way we think of a traditional movie. It's not like Tony Stark who has to learn to be a caring and giving person. Or
1: Dorothy who has to learn that there's no place like home. Yeah.
0: Or even like um, the great scenes of Quentin Tarantino where two characters are trying to one-up each other. Which character is going to win the scene? Think of the basement scene in inglorious Bastards. These are all amazing moments in cinema but have a traditional scene structure that this movie completely just throws away. Um, This movie is tremendous. It is easily, like I said, top 10 favorite movies of all time. It's my favorite singular piece of science fiction yeah, mine too. on film. Yeah. It's one of my favorite science fiction books of all time. From my favorite science fiction writer, Arthur C. Clarke, easily. Eh, Philip K. Dick is up there too.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, Arthur C. Clarke, favorite, one of my two favorite science fiction writers, I should say. I want to kick off analysis with a few sort of guiding ideas or principles. We just did a series on nostalgia, and in it, I noticed a trend in those movies. The trend was most of them geared a little towards sci-fi, and that's E.T., Back to the Future. Um, They have this sort of science fiction element to it, and I started wondering the larger question, and we did this similar with Lord of the Rings. We asked the question in the Lord of the Rings series, what is fantasy? And I'd like to kick off the thoughts on 2001 and ask a very similar question. What is science fiction? Why do we have it? What is the genre? And is there any virtue aside from just the raw entertainment aspect of it? And when I started meditating on what is sci-fi, I had to go to my favorite science fiction movie of all time as the beginning of this conversation. And then Laurel and I were discussing this, we realized something. We can't just ask the question, what is sci-fi, and talk about 2001. So we're going to launch, starting with this episode, a five-part series on science fiction-themed movies. And we're going to be asking different questions about and of sci-fi, and we're going to be investigating them through 2001 first, and then subsequently through the other movies we have planned, which... Pay attention to our Twitter, and we will tell you what those are. First question I have for you about 2001 A Space Odyssey is this. What is science fiction, and is this movie a science fiction movie?
1: Okay, Uh, what is science fiction is such a massive question because I think the genre is so variable and has evolved a whole lot over the years. Uh, because there is science fiction that is pulp. There's Buck Rogers. You know, there is family-oriented science fiction like ET. Uh, there's science. Fi- there's space opera. You know, there's a huge uh, wealth of science fiction that's often seen as um, slightly less uh, noble or, you know, a a little bit below the caliber of literature, although that is usually misguided criticism. And then there is uh, science fiction like H.G. Wells and Arthur C. Clarke and Philip K. Dick. And then there is science fiction by people like Octavia Butler and these are, uh, and Frank Herbert. These are stories that usually are asking uh, fundamentally human questions, big cosmic questions uh, like, who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Uh, what is the meaning of life? And answering that rather than through everyday circumstances, rather than through um, you know boy meets girl romantic comedy or adventure narratives, answering that through following um, following the questions of human nature to their logical ends, uh, and that usually happens by introducing technology or some aspect of futurism to extrapolate something really universal about human nature. So that was a long-winded way of saying science fiction is a genre that I think interrogates human nature more um, brutally and honestly than most other genres, and does so by following it through technology and futurism.
0: That's amazing. So let me read the Oxford English Dictionary definition of science fiction. Fiction based on an imagined future, scientific or technological advances, and major social or environmental changes, frequently portraying space or time travel and life on other planets.
1: Great, yeah.
0: And I think that's a neat definition.
1: Very literal and very, yeah.
0: It's very crisp. There are a few things that you need to have science fiction as a genre. You need science. You need to have a certain level of scientific, technological advancement, in your society in order to have fiction around said science. And I think the the glue that ties science fiction together from that broad brush that you just painted, which I think is a very accurate, is that it's always based on, in some level, scientific principles. Yeah. And it's taking the ideas that we know currently about science and imagining where they go... And because you're imagining where they go, you're imagining where humans go with it. And I think that's how it interrogates human nature. So we have computers in 1968, but they're not really good. They're about the size of a warehouse. They can't do too much. So you imagine a world where a computer is a talking conscious entity and can program a ship and that what happens when humans and this computer interact And that interrogates something about humanity. I think that is the way in which science fiction can interrogate the human condition because it says that there is a link between these technological advancement and how people driving that technological advancement where they go. And that's how you can have everything from Black Mirror to Rick and Morty all encapsulated in this one genre.
1: Yeah. And it all falls under the umbrella of speculative fiction. And I think I've said this on the podcast before, but at the heart of speculative fiction and science fiction to that end is a what if, you know, that's how these stories begin. What if, and that question can take you in so many different directions. It can take you to Dune, you know, it can take you to Earthseed. It can take you, uh, you know, to Jupiter and beyond the infinite. So there is, uh, such a broad spectrum of what is possible in sci-fi uh, that it—I'm excited that we're going to do a series on this rather than just trying to wrap it up uh, in one episode because there are so many ways to uh, to interpret it. There are really optimistic science fiction stories like what I think we're going to discuss today. That depends on how you read it, but I think we're discussing a very optimistic piece. Of science fiction, and then there's very pessimistic science fiction, like Black Mirror, uh, and it really comes down to, uh, you know, that what if, and how that, and how human nature interacts with that what if.
0: I love it. All right, so we have a functional definition of science fiction. We can amend it as we go, and at the end of the series, I think we should probably revisit this question: What have we learned? What is science fiction? Um, Is 2001 a space odyssey? So we're now in 2020. So the movie takes place in our past. It is no longer about the future of humanity. It starts pre-homo sapiens on Earth. It starts in ancient prehistoric times.
1: Yeah, I think the Pliocene era.
0: Is this a science fiction movie?
1: Uh, Yes, 100 percent. There are certainly some very prescient ideas that show up in 2001. There are some technologies that were predicted pretty well. Uh, You know, Stanley Kubrick includes a video call, which, uh, you know, looks kind of primitive to us when we watch it now uh, this many years later. But what are we doing every day but zooming with everyone like video calls are a part of your everyday experience. Uh, and the progression of AI. Uh, Certainly we are not at a place where it's almost indistinguishable from real intelligence or human intelligence, but we are crawling closer to that line every day as we develop more and more sophisticated uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, We don't have necessarily interstellar travel yet, but we do have uh, functioning space travel, and this was made in 1968 when we were still very much embroiled in the race to space. Uh, So I think this movie absolutely was prescient and predicted a whole lot of uh, advancements and predicted a whole lot of social and political things as well, which I think we'll talk about. Um, It it is science fiction in that it engages in speculation about what is possible in the future. um, And it is also deeply engaged with um, how humans will adapt to those changes.
0: And I do think one of the keys to science fiction and I don't think this is dogmatically true in every sense of all iterations of science fiction, but they're also typically imagined universes, imagined worlds where the there is no magic. Their fundamental makeup, um, the rules of physics apply. There's obviously exceptions like Star Wars, you know, where there's space wizards. So I don't think that's always the case. But I think most science fiction, when you think of like, the most raw, pure sci-fi. There's and you no- can
1: get into the distinctions about hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi and so on, but yeah.
0: Which is sp- splitting a few more hairs than agreed, I'm willing to agreed. do. But generally speaking, there doesn't tend to be magic in a science fiction narrative. Enter in 2001 and the monolith. Actually, hold on. Before we get there, I want to back up a little bit. Because I think there's something interesting about how 2001 was made that makes it kind of unique. We typically don't talk about production history of movies in the podcast, even though we do learn about them when we research a movie or TV show. Um, This movie was made in a very interesting way. So Stanley Kubrick, the director, approached Arthur C. Clarke, and he approached with like a problem and thinking that sci-fi movies were bad. Yeah. He didn't like them, and he wanted to make sci-fi movies good. So he asked Arthur C. Clarke to start writing him short stories. Arthur C. Clarke gave him a flurry of short stories in which they picked out one called The Sentinel, which is about finding an ancient artifact buried on the moon, and then asked Arthur C. Clarke to start developing the screenplay. Meanwhile, Stanley Kubrick was developing the movie. These things were happening concurrently. And then Kubrick went to Arthur C. Clarke and said, in order to do this right, you actually have to write a novel and asked him to write the novel while they were making the movie. In the novel, famously, the mission is to Saturn, not to Jupiter. But Stanley Kubrick didn't like the available photos of Saturn because they didn't accentuate the rings enough, so he switched it to Jupiter because the photos of Jupiter he thought would look better than the photos of Saturn. So, that's the reason there's that difference there between Saturn and Jupiter in the book and the movie. And so Arthur C. Clarke writes the book, the movie comes out, then the book is published. Yeah, The book and the movie happened concurrently. They were working together. Kubrick asked Arthur C. Clarke to make a novel to help inspire the movie, being they started to make a movie That is such a unique and amazing partnership. That's not typically, as far as I know, how any movie is ever made.
1: Right, and there are certainly novelizations of movies that come out. Like Star Wars will always have a novelization that is developed somewhat concurrently. Um, But this is definitely a unique experience. And between two really important uh, creators, too. So you've got the great auteur director in Stanley Kubrick and then this incredible iconic sci-fi writer and Arthur C. Clarke, and to know that they worked together to build this sci-fi world is kind of amazing that those egos didn't clash in like a huge and uh, significant way. It really blows my mind. Um, But yeah, a really unique experience. And I I love it, right? I love the idea that there is this kind of dual uh, space held for the... um, you know, the authorized or the um, the canonical version of the text, right? So there is really no uh, no version of it that has more authority than the other. so it can live in these two very different spaces and offer these two very different experiences that can be either complementary or contradictory depending on what kind of audience member you are. So my understanding, and I haven't read the novel, but you've told me a lot about it, is that uh, Arthur C. Clarke goes into a lot of specificity about what the monolith is, what the Jupiter mission serves, what the experience that Dave goes through really is, and the entire evolutionary process of uh, the characters within the story. And I think that's amazing. And if you you want to get into those details, that can offer you a really rich landscape and experience.
0: And they also go into great detail why and how the computer programming of how errors. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Whereas Kubrick's experience is much more subconscious is much more visually driven. There's no, uh, attempt to explain anything for you. So it lives in a lot of ambiguity. It often demands multiple viewings, uh, and it, 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 resists feeding you any information that is not, um, metaphorical or symbolic. There is a fantastic quote by Kubrick that I'll, I'll share here that really just, it explained to me why, you know, we're doing this on this podcast. He says, quote, if 2001 has stirred your emotions, your subconscious, your mythological yearnings, then it has succeeded, end quote. Is there no better explanation of why we should talk about something on The Midnight Myth? But yeah, you get these two very different experiences. One very symbolic very ambiguous, very open to interpretation, and then one a little more concrete, and you can take them together or you can pick one that you prefer and they can enrich each other or they can cancel each other out. It really depends on how you experience the story.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I just to, you talked about it commands multiple viewings. My father showed me this movie. I was maybe 13 or 14 And my jaw was just dropped. And I just looked to dad and I'm like, and dad, my dad knew I liked sci-fi and I'd never seen anything like it. And I just looked at him. I'm like, what was that movie? I really had no idea what it was about. And he was just like, think about it, that it's about human evolution. Right. That's all he said. And then we went to bed because it's a long movie and we were tired. And I just thought about it. It's about human evolution. And so I went out, so we had rented it. I went out, purchased the movie, and re-watched it several times. It's about human evolution because teenage, young adult Derek didn't get it, but I just innately connected to the imagery. It spoke to me in a mythological way. It's resonated in my unconscious mind, and I consciously wasn't able to grapple with the concepts of the movie. And I had to rewatch it just so I could summon from the reservoir of my unconscious mind and put rational thoughts around it to describe the experience. And then I went and started reading the books, yeah, yeah, because I had to read the books. But when I was young, Derek, I thought the books predated the movie,
1: right. Yeah, you thought it was an adaptation,
0: and it's not right. the It started with Kubrick wanting to make a movie and talking to Arthur C. Clark. It ended with a movie, and then shortly thereafter, a book came out.
1: Yeah, I yeah, I think that's fantastic. And such an interesting way that you put that, that you had to summon from the reservoir of your sort of unconscious experience to put rational thought to this film. That, I think, uh, encapsulates a lot of people's experience of this. And it's a frustrating experience for a lot of people. Uh, but for those who are open to a little bit of ambiguity, who are open to doing some work, or who are... And honestly, if you're not open to doing a lot of work when you watch a movie, just succumbing to like your emotional response to the things that happen on screen is really, really valuable. And I think Stanley Kubrick would agree with me on that.
0: Yeah, it took me years to figure out why I love this movie and yeah. how to articulate my love for this movie. It took me a long time to work through because I just connected to it and I couldn't have told you why. Exactly, I had no idea what I watched and I just knew that I loved it.
1: I love it. I think it's we, almost yeah. like
0: falling in love. <laughs> it really is. You don't understand it. You're not sure how it happened. It just happened and you're in love and you're like, I can't question it. My experience of 2001 is very much like that. I couldn't understand it. There are parts of the movie that I still struggle to articulate why I enjoy it. You know, like there are things of this movie that I'm still working through today, having rewatched it several times for this podcast that I'm still confused about and don't understand.
1: Yeah, and, you know, enjoying and kind of sitting in the discomfort of not understanding it can be like half the fun of trying to unravel this movie. (laughs) I think that's an incredible segue because I would love to move into talking specifically about the monolith uh, and how to uh, how to read the monolith as a symbol throughout the story and how that can kind of be uh, a microcosm of how we read the entire narrative. But the way you were describing uh, how it's, it's hard to understand but it's like falling in love, I think uh, encapsulates one of the readings that I found of the monolith, which is that the monolith is in a way Lovecraftian. Um, I found this in an essay by Michael D. Miller in a journal called Lovecraft Annual, because of course there is a Lovecraft Annual for enthusiasts and scholars of H.P. Lovecraft's work. But he describes how 2001 is filled with Lovecraftian cosmicism. And the way I'll kind of uh, simplify that is to say um, a key element of Lovecraftian horror is the vast and unknowable and cosmically grand. These concepts or entities that are so old and so massive that they're incomprehensible and they make our very existence feel incredibly small and meaningless in their wake. Uh, Like you've got these big beasts or entities like uh, Cthulhu who are so, so ancient and so old that we are barely bugs on their windshield, but to us they they kind of break our minds apart. It's not unlike the concept of the sublime, which we discussed a few weeks ago in the Phantom of the Opera. It's this uh, source of agreeable horror, just the incredibly bottomless pit. And the monolith can be read in that way as this vast and unknowable thing like the vacuum of space that is encountered by tiny minuscule beings like pre-homo sapiens. I thought that was an interesting way to possibly read the monolith.
0: Yeah, you know, and what I was saying, started to say before, um, the monolith to me, and that science fiction, rather, being based on scientific principles tends to be fundamentally unmagical in its nature. But the monolith in this movie operates on a kind of cosmically magical way and level. So there are two ways that you can read the monolith in that respect to me. Way number one, it is a piece of technology so advanced it appears to be magical to those who interact with it. Imagine if we went back and hung out with Ben Franklin and showed him a smartphone. He'd probably think it was magical. And Ben Franklin invented the American enlightenment. He was a smart person, right? But it would still look and operate like magic because it's so advanced. Well, imagine a monolith that has technology we can't even comprehend. It appears magical. The other way to read it is that it is somehow magical in nature. Yeah. And I think the strength of 2001 is how it blends the science and the magic together into one. And that it's almost irrelevant. Like, if we ask ourselves, what is the nature and the substance of the monolith? It's irrelevant. Yeah. Because the monolith represents a tool that helps propel humans or prehumans evolution in their evolution. Yeah. It says if you touch the monolith, you will now realize you can hold a bone. What does that mean? That means you'll have more food. That means you'll have more water. It is about propelling the material evolution of this species that gets them to the point where they can be humans. From the time frame of human, Homo sapiens living in cages until the end of the Cold War and peace on Earth, right? Yeah. Because that's the time frame that jumps between the mono, where between people of creatures of Earth interacting with the monolith. Yeah, yeah. Right. Millions of years of evolution. Yep. Right. Hundreds of thousands of years of humans of being on the planet, and we've gone from cave people to colonizing the moon. We've gone from a Cold War, which almost extinguished life on the planet, to American and Russian scientists hanging out in a space station, drinking and talking about high-level government secrets,
1: and saying, "Yeah, you should come and visit us in uh, in, in Russia, or like maybe call me up next time you're in the states." Like, there's no problem between these people in the '90s.
0: Yep, a significant part of that movie is it takes time to show the main scientist, I'm forgetting his name.
1: Haywood Floyd. Haywood
0: Floyd gets to a space station on his way to the moon, and he sits and he meets a group of Russian scientists, and they were denied entry to the American space station, and the rumor is because there's an epidemic. And he's sitting there, and a a Russian scientist is pressing an American scientist, both working for their governments, about high-level government secrets. In the 60s, that the idea of that being possible was unimaginable.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: America and Russia had nuclear bombs pointed at each other with hands on the turnkeys, shaking, counting down the clock to whether or not they're going to turn it. Yeah. The idea that these two groups of people can be working together, can colonize the moon together, is a huge leap forward. We're not at that level even now today. Right. Right? And... um And because of that, we have reached the point where the monolith must intercede. There's a reason Stanley Kubrick shows the bone cutting to the spaceship. They're fundamentally the same thing. It is a tool that humans can use to conquer the external environment. By conquering the external environment, they can meet their material needs and they can defeat evolution. They're no longer in competition for resources to survive, and hence they're living in peace. And that's the point where the monolith returns to say it's time for the next step.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to point out there because we see the uh, the, the apes and we see Moonwatcher Uh, touching the monolith and discovering this inner reason and discovering the ability to use tools and the first action that comes of this is a violent one. It produces conflict and that conflict produces evolution. Uh, It requires uh, one of you to try and triumph over the other in order to uh, escape this cycle of sameness. And what we see in the future, in the 90s, is sameness we see that humankind has reached a limit and has kind of plateaued they have colonized space but now there's not conflict it appears there is global peace and so at that point how do we evolve and I think that's a really interesting and uh, you know somewhat pessimistic question that's being asked. It's like once we have conquered all evil on earth have we just stopped growing? Uh, and must we introduce new conflict because of that?
0: No, I, I, I don't think it's pessimistic. And I think okay. you hit the nail on the head when you describe this movie as fundamentally optimistic. Yeah,
1: I think it is. I'm just curious because about this inner segment. Yeah.
0: Once interspecies conflict ends, the next conflict is humans versus technology. Yeah, yeah. And that is personified in Dave versus Hal. Yeah. And humans conquer that. So there is an element that there is conflict there is competition in order to drive evolution and the evo- the new evolution will be humans and technology not humans and needing food and water yeah and then forming nation states and then forming huge governments and then forming huge militaries and then trying to kill each other with those huge militaries
1: and then forming uh you know the united nations and having human rights oversight yeah
0: yeah and so i mean the the formation of nation states and wars the movie is arguing is an extension of apes over a watering hole
1: great great there's yeah. not
0: enough resources so we're going to kill each other for those resources a necessary step to get to the point to develop the hal 9000 And to conquer technology itself. Mm. And what happens when Dave finally disconnects Hal? He is by himself alone in the vacuum of space. A solitary, isolated human individual finally gets to bridge the gap and become one with the monolith. And that is the step. And it ends... It ends with Dave returning, reborn after death. Yeah, yeah. A new species comes back to Earth, presumably to help the other humans hit this next stage of evolution. Yeah. Because of that, it has to be optimistic. In other words, all of the blood, all of the suffering, all mm, of the pain, mm, mm. all of the torment, all of it, horrible as it is, was a necessary growing pain to get us to a point where we can finally break free of our human selves and become the next stage of our evolution. And we're gonna get there.
1: Yeah, right? That's it's what the movie says. It's gonna take a really long time. That's what the movie is yeah. saying. Yeah. Because the
0: movie's saying we will get there and it's in that, inevitable. In that respect, it is optimistic. We might need to, and the movie says that we can't, it also, in one respect, Maybe we don't get there on our own without the monolith. Yeah, yeah. Right? So maybe the monolith is the tool. And that's the part where, or not the tool, rather, the catalyst.
1: Yeah, it's the intervention.
0: You know, but because there is a sort of divine technological intervention that helps humans get to Star Child, doesn't mean that humans themselves are innately bad. Rather, it means the opposite.
1: Yeah, okay. You know, it,
0: it means they're innately good because whatever planted it there knew whether that is God, magical beans, bulk beans from the Tesseract, a nice version of yeah. Thanos, whatever you want to imagine. Cause the movie <laughs> doesn't say the book does. Yeah. The book is a more concrete about who planted it. Um, In the book, it is a species that evolved to energy. Yeah. And they can travel the cosmos as well as one consciousness. And they placed the monoliths on species with a, high propensity to also em- like evolve to that level, right? To also get to that point. Yeah. And the idea is to place these pieces of technology to jumpstart evolution, to help other species evolve to where they're at.
1: Very neoplatonic.
0: And very much humans w- deserve to be there, right? Yeah, like,
1: yeah. And can get there and it's inevitable that they will.
0: And why don't we just nudge? It's also, you know, little Aristotle, unmoved mover.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Very much in the Neoplatonic tradition of the one and the higher intellect. I think that's fascinating. One thing I'd love to draw a little bit of attention to in the appearances of the monolith and in the tools that are used to uh, sort of execute this evolutionary strategy on the behalf of the uh, early beings through man is uh, the sort of masculine energies of it. So the uh, monolith itself is, of course, a phallic symbol. It is this upright, erect structure uh, it's a powerful kind of thrusting uh, entity that appears in the environment and is very stark against the natural landscape. Uh, and then the first tool is a bone, is another phallic symbol. And then the spaceships themselves usually seem phallus-like or the discovery mission is in this sperm-like uh, vehicle that's really fascinating. Uh, and then, of course, when Dave is disassembling Hal, he's doing so with a screwdriver. It's constantly um giving us either this phallic or this penetrative uh you know use of tools uh that is extremely masculine in uh in how it's implemented and what I think is fascinating about all this is where we actually end up at the end of the story uh is throwing away some of these masculine. Uh, dominating, violent conflicts that produce evolution, and we end up in a more feminine amniotic womb-like uh, transformation. So the final leap that's made from Dave from human to star child happens uh, in a in the home. Happens in a place that looks comfortable and safe. Happens in a bed and then produces something that uh, is reminiscent of the feminine creative act of reproduction. He shows up as an embryo that is traveling through space. So I think it's an interesting um, transition that we go from these really phallic tools to suddenly the actual like true leap of evolution happens through uh, not destructive, but creative activity.
0: That's amazing. I'd say drop the mic, but they're on stands. (laughs) Every time. if we think of what Kubrick said as this movie, as a myth, you know, ancient people p- developed myths in part because they saw cycles of how things were working and they needed to create an apparatus to understand those cycles. Natural phenomena seemed to have a rhythm to it two ancient people and a myth helped explain that rhythm and it helped to make sense of that rhythm and humans place in them, throw in some psychosexual and boom, you got Zeus. Yeah. Right. And you got Odin and a lot, and that's a gross, gross simplification of mythology. And and
1: Zeus is gross, but (laughs) Zeus is
0: also gross. He's no Odin, but you know, at the end of the day, we see another symbol in this that I'd like to point out is cycles, circles. Things happening in wheels. You have turning spaceships. You have the monolith penetrating gigantic space orbs aligning in eclipses.
1: Yeah, you have Hal. You have the circular eye of Hal.
0: You have the spaceship being a circle in which they are jogging around. We see Frank jogging around to get his exercise.
1: Which has a dual purpose. It's got the symbolic metaphoric purpose of cycles of death, life, and rebirth, but it also is like as close as any science fiction movie has ever gotten to reproducing how you would do zero gravity. Right. Like it actually is, is based in real science and they had incredible uh, consultations from real scientists on this. So I think that's fascinating.
0: Yeah, and so where I'm getting to this and you, yeah, you got yeah. ahead of me there is that the the ancient myths all perpetuating cycles of life, death and rebirth. Yeah, yeah. And they are fundamentally about life, death and rebirth. That all of these cycles happen to have life get born, it dies, and it gets reborn. And in this movie, we see a the whole movie a cycle of life, death, and rebirth. However, not of a person, but of a species. Yeah. And we see in many ways the death of man and the rebirth of a new species out of man. We see that cycle get completed at the end, which brings me to the music. Because there's a particular song, we all know it, it's called Thus Spoke Zarathustras, and it is it has the timpanies. I'm not gonna try to replicate it, yeah. but it's like the song. And that song is based off of Strauss, who is the composer, and he read a book called Thus Spoke Zarathustras by Friedrich Nietzsche, and was so inspired he wanted to create music based upon that inspiration. And I think it'd be worthwhile to pivot a little bit to understand Frederick Nietzsche and Frederick Nietzsche's impact on popular culture and how this movie plays with some of the concepts of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so Frederick Nietzsche was a 19th century <laughs> philosopher. He started as a classicist, and this is important. If you don't know what a classicist is, this is someone that studies ancient Greek and Roman literature. So he started studying ancient Greek and ancient Latin. And from that, he read the literature. And it's important when you think of Nietzsche, the philosopher, to understand that he started with a love of humans in their past. And every classicist starts with the love of that era and that time. There's a swell of passion in all of Nietzsche's writings. Thus Spoke Zarathustras is very famous for phrases like God is dead. Um, it is very famous for things like the philosophy of eternal reoccurrence. It's also where we have the phrase amor fati or to love fate. These are all things we've talked about in other episodes. Yeah, yeah. But there's one thing we haven't talked about a lot that is introduced in Thus Spoke Zarathustras. The crux of it is, and I read this a long time ago, it is a parable, a mock Bible, if you will, of Zar- Zarathustras walking around Europe, speaking his philosophies and his ideas, almost like he is the non-Christ. He is the, there is no God version of a prophet. prophet yeah. And in it, he introduces the idea of the Ubermensch. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this. It was originally first translated into English as the word Superman, You may have heard that word before because it was picked up by a comic book series when they decided to create a comic about the Superman. So without Friedrich Nietzsche, we do not have Superman as we know it today. That is where that term came from. Some call it the overman now. They say that's a better translation in German. Some call it the overhuman as opposed to the overman. But what is this idea? What is the ubermensch. And I'm for the purposes of the rest of the podcast, I'm just going to say ubermensch
1: because yeah, that works. I
0: don't want to get too bogged down into how to translate it because that's a whole other can of worms. I'm going to give a quick quote from thus spoke the zarathustra. All beings so far have created something beyond themselves and you do want to be the ebb of this great flood and even go back to the beast rather than overcome man. What is the ape to man, a laughingstock or a painful embarrassment? And man shall be just that for the overman, a laughingstock or a painful embarrassment. You have made your way from worm to man, and much in you is still worm. Once you were apes, and even now, too, man is more ape than any ape.
1: Whew, I don't see how that relates. I just don't get it, Derek.
0: I like that quote because it so relates. Yeah, And the idea of the Ubermensch is that there is a next stage in human development where we will break beyond being humans and we will become this new thing. And the demarcating line is that the Ubermensch lives in amor fati. The Ubermensch loves fate. The Ubermensch loves their life. The Ubermensch lives life to its fullest. And it's a stark reminder that who we are now in many ways is still closer to ape than we are to the ubermensch. Yeah, That our evolution as a species just began 100,000 years ago. In the lifespan of evolution, that is nothing. We are children as a species. Just getting out of the muck, we just figured out not that long ago how to eat warm food. We just figured out how to have a nation. These things are brand freaking new. And because of that, we're closer to the animal than we are to what our next phase will be. And this movie is asking that question. It is. There's a reason it goes from pre-homo sapiens to space travel. yeah. It's telling us in a world where monoliths exist what is colonizing the moon. It's nothing. Yeah. You're still pretty much a worm, right? It is a world where we fundamentally haven't truly evolved yet. And this movie is about that evolution. It's why it picks that song? Yep. It's why it it, it is inspired by Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, Friedrich Nietzsche is controversial for a lot of reasons. Absolutely. Problematic for a lot of reasons. Thus spoke Zarathustras is problematic. It inspired Adolf Hitler. Yeah. He wanted to create a society of ubermensches. Um, Though Friedrich Nietzsche himself wasn't an anti-Semite at all, but it did in, in part plant the seeds for Nazism. We cannot afford to wipe away the problems of Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a horrific misogynist who absolutely looked at humans or human women as inferior to men. And I'm sure there's more I don't know about how problematic he is. But the idea of humans needing to evolve beyond human in order to get to the next phase, the idea that there can be an ubermensch, someone who truly lives in amor fati, I think is the central idea of the star child. It's the rebirth that we see. It is finally taking that one step beyond being ape people and becoming something more.
1: I 100% agree with you. I think that's extremely well said and well done finding that quote that just perfectly encapsulates so much of the ethos of this movie. Um, The monolith in, in many ways uh, you know, it has these different roles. It is uh, this tool that inspires the apes to become uh, something closer to man. It is this alarm that exists on the moon that has been waiting for us to achieve sufficient uh, evolutionary uh, progress that we are able to travel through space that triggers you know this other intellect to come and get us and come and take care of us it's this portal to beyond the infinite for dave uh and it's also the sublime it's also this lovecraftian horror it's also kind of god you know the final time we see it it's in this uh neoclassical looking room that's based on um it's based on a famous hotel i forget which one it is Um, but the character is reaching out for it with his finger outstretched, and it's extremely reminiscent of the creation of Adam by Michelangelo, which is uh, painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and symbolically, Dave is reborn as the new Adam. Uh, I'd love to read one more quote by Stanley Kubrick here, where he... uh, rarely ever breaks his silence on the meaning of his films. He usually likes to uh, let audiences enjoy the rewatches and enjoy um, you know, picking it apart and keeping their own readings. But he does say this, quote, "'On the deepest psychological level, the film's plot symbolizes the search for God, and it finally postulates what is little less than a scientific definition of God. The film revolves around this metaphysical conception,' and the realistic hardware and the documentary feelings about everything were necessary in order to undermine your built-in resistance to the poetical concept, end quote. To undermine your resistance to the poetical concept.
0: Okay, I've got to go back to Nietzsche on this for a minute in response to that. Is that okay? Please do. I mentioned that Nietzsche started out as a classicist. He started out studying the ancient world. He lived in a period of time at the end of what's called the European Enlightenment. Nietzsche looked at the Enlightenment and he described it as fundamentally Socratic in nature. Socrates being the main um, teacher of Plato, who Plato wrote down the teachings, he thought that Socrates postulated, and Plato postulated that the only thing you need to understand the world is your rational mind. It is about using knowledge systems based around thinking, debating, and philosophizing. And Nietzsche, as the classicist, had a counter to this idea. And he believed that the Socratic man by the end of the Enlightenment was dying and that there should be a rebirth of a new type of man. And I would like to read a quote that Nietzsche wrote. I believe he was still in grad school at this time. He wasn't actually the philosopher. It was about reflecting on the writings of classical um, writings. It was about the writing on classical writings. Dumbest thing ever. Oh, you're good. But you're with me. Here's this quote, and I do find this to be one of my all-time favorite quotes. I may have even read this on the pod before but it's never been as relevant as now. Quote, "'Yes, my friends, believe with me in the Dionysian life "'and the rebirth of tragedy. "'The age of the Socratic man is over. "'Put on wreaths of ivory, put the thyrus into your hand, "'and do not be surprised when tigers and panthers lay down, "'fawning at your feet. "'Only dare to be tragic men, for you are to be redeemed.'" You shall accompany the Dionysian pageant from India to Greece. Prepare for hard strife, but believe in the miracles of your God." End quote." Nietzsche is articulating in this, quote, "a rebirth of Dionysus, a rebirth of tragedy. The idea that it is poetry, it is passion, it is emotion. It is those are the things that drive us and propel us forward. Rational thinking by itself is not enough. Dare to be a tragic man, right? Dionysus famously marched from India to Greece in his mythological origins. And with him came the god Pan and animals and tigers in this amazing pageant. And Dionysus gets to, gets to Greece and stays, and Dionysus, we think of as the god of wine, but Dionysus is fundamentally about transformation, rebirth, about wine. Why do you drink wine when you celebrate Dionysus? Because getting drunk on wine makes you different. It's about becoming something new. Why is theater in ancient Greece fundamentally a Dionysian Religious ceremony because the actor transforms into something else. Have you listeners watched True Blood and seen the Maenad? What are the Maenads of ancient Greece? They are women who put on costumes as animals, who drink wine and have sex and get reborn as these new creatures, this Dionysian spirit. Nietzsche saw the rationality of the Enlightenment and did not reject its findings at whole cloth and say, this was wrong. But he said, it didn't do what we thought it would do. Rational thinking is not enough. We need the poetics of God. Nietzsche rejected the idea of a theological God. He was the atheist of this time period, and in many ways is the atheist today, the greatest atheist in many respects. But he didn't reject the poetry of God. He quotes, prepare for hard strife, but believe in the miracles of your God. It's okay to believe in a Dionysian way. To wrap this Nietzschean point up to the, the quote that we have here of Stanley Kubrick's that you brought in, Stanley Kubrick is creating a Dionysian tragedy. It is a, it, it's rejecting the idea that we can rationally understand what the monolith is. It's rejecting the idea that our evolution is going to make sense to us in the way we want. It's saying you can be so rational that you can end global conflict, but you're not actually evolving. Believe in the poetry believe that you can be reborn in a Dionysian spirit. You can be the star child.
1: It's rejecting also the idea that our next evolution will be created by us in the rational form of hell, in the Apollonian form of hell. It is saying that the triumph will always be on the part of not the thinking computer, but the feeling man, the Dionysian man in Dave Bowman. And his rebirth will be romantic. And that I think gets to, in a way that I've never really been able to articulate before, so thank you for this, why this is my favorite sci-fi film is because it is romantic science fiction. Big R romantic, my favorite podcast word. Uh, It deals in the sublime, it deals in the vast and unknowable, it deals in agreeable horror, uh, and it deals in the poetry of theological concepts and also I, uh, scientific and rational and pragmatic concepts.
0: And for the first time in my entire life, I've been able to articulate why I love this movie because of this episode. This came to me in the moment. Yeah.
1: I saw it happen on your face.
0: <laughs> when you said that, I'm like, I get it now. Kubrick is, he is Dionysian. Yeah. And he is rejecting the Socratic man. He is saying that we have all of these Socratic men in this movie and none of them can get to the monolith. It takes defeating rationality. It takes conquering the rationale. The, the Enlightenment principles manifest in how that all you need to be is pure thought, mechanical, analytical, and precise, and incapable of error. Well, what do we find? It errors. It breaks down. It. Doesn't work. It takes a human fighting for their life, scraping to survive, wanting to complete the mission because they want to complete the mission deep in their bones to enter that monolith and be reborn as a star child.
1: Listen, folks, take our reading of this film with a grain or a monolith-sized mountain of salt because truly there are no wrong ways to experience this movie uh, you know, we're we're pushing up on time, so I'm not going to go deeply into this, but, you know, we could talk about how to read this as a retelling of Homer's The Odyssey, easily. Dave Bowman, uh, what is Odysseus if not an archer? Like, it, it's, it's all there, these incredible um, mythological parallels where it is touching back on classical mythology of our world, but also where uh, these sort of psychoanalytical and psychosexual concepts create their own... Uh, own brand new mythology, own mythology for the future. Uh, There are countless, countless essays and books and films uh, and treatises inquiring the true meaning of this movie, and I don't think a single one of them is devoid of value. So if this is a movie that really sets you alight, that stirs your mythological yearnings to borrow from Kubrick, seek those things out. I'll try and share some this week that really um, excited me. But wow, this was a really fun conversation to have. I learned so much. I feel like we found some things while we were digging and while we were discussing. And that is the key to a really good discussion of film.
0: Yeah, and I think this is one way to read the movie. It's by no means the way. In particular, a movie that deals largely in visual poetry and symbol yeah instead of concrete scenes with plots, you could you could take th- this movie in an entire different direction. And in fact, Midnight Myth listeners, if you do, tell me the direction.
1: Yeah. I would love to hear some counterpoints, some some different readings that you have.
0: Yeah. Uh fantastic. There's another reason why we wanted to talk about this movie. And I know we are very close with time and we did plan an entire segment to talk about Homer's The Odyssey, but we are literally out of time. Yeah, Um, We got to like half of what we wanted to talk about. But this, I can't stress enough that we have to say before we're done, we promised a big announcement here, and we have one. And I think, Laurel, you should be the person with this announcement.
1: Cool. So uh, one of the reasons this is really apropos that we're announcing this during this particular episode is that on the first day that Derek and I met, uh, Derek, you made a reference uh, where you said, Open the Pod Bay doors for me. And I think you were asking somebody to like turn on a projector for you. Uh, and you said, Open the Pod Bay doors. And someone else in the room was like, Oh, is that Star Wars? And I scoffed and I looked at him and I was like, No, it's 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I think in that very moment, you and I, in this first time meeting, were like, our eyes met and we were like, oh, I have found a kindred spirit. I fell in love. Yeah. And now we're married. And uh, at the end of this movie, uh, an embryonic star child heads toward the earth. Uh, And at this very moment, I am carrying a star child. So Derek and I are having a baby, um, which is super, super exciting news. A little quarantennial is coming your way. Uh, This will mean some changes for the podcast in the future, but we don't have to worry about that now. Um, we
0: don't know what those changes will be. We honestly don't. Yeah, but
1: our plan is very much to keep going with as little interruption as possible.
0: To those listening to us, you are like family to us. Like we, we gain so much um, respect, admiration, joy from the fact that we have people who do listen to every podcast. And we really just wanted to share with you that we are having a child because you're part of our lives and this entire idea of doing a sci-fi um series birthed out of no pun intended (laughs) us thinking how are we going to tell people that we're having a baby on the podcast and then it was like, well, we have to talk about 2001 because it ends with a baby floating over yep, Earth.
1: It's the only it's the only logical answer.
0: And then we were like, what is sci fi anyway? And that's how we got to doing this whole series. This is the first we're going to do five
1: part. Yep. Part one. Four or five. Yeah.
0: Part one of four or five on science fiction. And uh we are having a baby.
1: Hashtag Midnight Myth Baby.
0: Hashtag only dare to be tragic humans and until next time be kind be kind